we are going to be reading Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, invested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long, upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And all the people witnessed the thundering, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. You may be seated. Join me in prayer as we begin to look at this second book of the Bible, Exodus. Let's pray. Father God, we pray to you, our great and awesome God. I pray this morning that you would take my own inadequacies this day and work in me what you will. Take my words and make them yours. Take my mind and renew it according to your word. Take my heart and let it be consecrated to thee, and I pray that, Lord, for each one here. Lord, I pray that you would have your way as the word is preached and proclaimed this morning. I pray that you would have your way among your people here in this place. I pray, Lord, as we see in this book, we echo the words of Moses and ask of you, show us your glory. Open our eyes that we might see you at work in the world around us. We thank you, Lord, and praise your name for showing yourself to us, to making yourself known. Reveal your power and presence to us this day as we 
travel through the book of Exodus here this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would speak and pray that we, your servants, would be attentive to hear what you have to teach us this morning through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we live among a people of unclean lips, as the prophet says. We live in a day where the word of God is rare. And by the way, we'll get to that when we get to 1 Samuel. <laughs> We're coming upon that one. But it's true that we live in that kind of day right now. Rare in the sense that people rarely speak of God. Rarely give credit to God. Rarely point out God working in their lives. We live during a time when the people of God, instead of feasting on the good word of God, we are experiencing what the prophet talked about and described as a famine in the land. Feasting on God's word is not the default, church. The natural slide is toward famine, if we're not careful. I've read probably on a few different occasions, at least bits and excerpts, most of Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, an older book, a uh, classic in many regards. It's been around for years. And I believe it's a classic because it, it refuels and refreshes the reader to the work of God in the lives of real people. It, it's a book that recounts the work and the movement of God. It, it points you to the power and the presence of God intended in the life of a follower of Christ. I'm encouraged as I read Blackaby because I see evidence of God at work in his life, in those around him, evidence of God in the church that he's a part of. It's encouraging, it's refreshing, it's uplifting. Experiencing God. Isn't that the cry of your heart? To want to know him. If you are in Christ, to experience the very presence and power of God at work in your life. I hope that all of us could say yes to that. Not just to know him, not just to know about him, but to experience him, to walk with him, to abide with Christ, to do his will. And in the process to see him working in you and to see him working through you for his glory and honor. I'd ask you this morning as we look at this book of Exodus. Have you had many God sightings in your life? That's the subtitle of the message really. God sightings in Exodus. And oh there are many God sightings in Exodus. We're not going to have time to cover all of them. We'll cover hopefully some of the main ones. We will get to Exodus 40 today. We're going to start in Exodus 1 and we're going to end in Exodus 40. Don't worry, I'm not going verse by verse though. 
But we will get to Exodus 40. God sightings. These moments where God invades your space. We are a people that don't like people to invade our space. When someone gets a little too close to us, physically, there's this invisible wall, that, and we can't define it by inches necessarily, but you know when that other person is a little too close. When we open up this book of Exodus, we see on countless occasions God invading the space, if you will, not only of Moses, but his people. He gets right up close and he is at work in their lives. He is doing some rearranging. God's sightings, these moments where God unmistakably shows up in your life. Moments where the hand of God was so evident upon you, you had no doubt that God was at work. You know, I was reading Luke 7 recently in my Bible reading time. And I came across these words in chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. It says, by the way, the context is Jesus uh, raising up the widow of Nain's son. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he, that's Jesus, presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen up among us. And listen to what else they said. God has visited his people. Jumped off the page at me as I was reading. God has visited his people. I was looking in Matthew chapter 1, the familiar passage there where the angel is speaking to Joseph about this child that Mary is carrying and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And and it goes on and says, so all of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, bear a son, and they shall call his name what, church? Emmanuel. Translated what? God with us. God with us. And then I was flipping over to John's gospel in chapter 1, and I read this, And the word became flesh, and dwelt, or tabernacled, Among us. He moved among us. A few verses later in verse 18, John 1 says that the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He, or in the original, this one, declared the Father. Jesus came and declared the Father. He came as Emmanuel, God with us. And if you read Acts chapter 2, you see that God visits his people by coming even closer. You think it's uncomfortable that he came in the form of his son down here to earth. He comes even closer in the promised Holy Spirit. He now is in you if you are in Christ. He doesn't merely send his son, but he pours out the promised Holy Spirit into our hearts. You see, the Bible says that's a, that's a form of his love. His love being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
God has visited his people. Read the scriptures. It's hard to miss the God sightings. The, the various places where God leaves a mark. I.e., uh, last week we talked in Genesis. How about creation for starters? That's a pretty good mark, right? The flood. That got some attention. I mean, you keep going. You're thinking through what we covered last week in the 50 chapters of Genesis. God leaves a mark. He changes a heart. Think about uh, this young man, Saul, to Paul. Changes a heart. Think about how he transforms a situation. How he takes the impossible and he makes it possible. He says to Abraham and Sarah, this time next year, you're going to have a child. And, the, and Sarah, ha, ha, ha. And he says, no, no, it's going to happen. And what happens? One year later. In your Bible, if you read Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, you see the answer. I love it. I'm going to read it because I, I really like seeing this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. See, he takes what seems impossible and he makes it possible. And even in Genesis and Exodus, what we're seeing, church, is God showing up. And on our end, what, what is needed? What's the response on our end? What's he looking for on our end? We talked last week about the covenant, what God brings to the equation. And then what does God expect of us, right? What is it he expects of us as we walk with him in these days? Let me tell you what it is. The Bible says it's faith. He's expecting us to walk by faith. And we see this evidenced in Genesis. We see it evidenced in Exodus. In large part through Moses. As we take this road trip through Exodus, I'd like to just pull off to the road at various points and show you a few of the sites. Familiar sites for many of you here. But necessary sites to stop and pull over and look at once again. A few of the God sightings in particular. It'll give us an opportunity to get our feet wet on seeing God at work in the lives of his people. Plenty to get us started. Plenty to wet our appetite. Plenty to get us thinking of how God is at work in our own lives even today. We're not just reading a book about something that happened years ago. We're reading a living and powerful book. God has revealed to his word to us. And it's life. It's intended to give life. The power and presence of God is thick in this book of Exodus. Well, here's the first God sighting. Stop number one. And perhaps this isn't one that you would think of. That would be shared. I think it's significant that Exodus opens up with this one. And it's the one about the Hebrew midwives. Exodus chapter 1. I want you to consider for just a moment what the king of Egypt requests of these two women. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, you can keep her alive. 
These women are being instructed by the king of the land to kill all of the Hebrew boys at birth. Take the life from the boys. Don't allow them to live. I want you to consider also that the king of Egypt is making this request of these two Hebrew midwives. When the king gives a command, it's good to promptly execute, oftentimes, what he has to say. That is, unless he makes a request that is contrary to God's will and God's way, which is the case here. You know, I was reminded of this as as we make our way into the New Testament and we see the the passage of Scripture that on a few different occasions where the apostles get brought into the council. Remember that? Remember the scene? They get brought into the council and and it's one of these initially and then it's a whipping and a flogging. Why? Stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. Do they do that? And they leave after they get punished, counting themselves worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Sorry, we can't do that. We can't help but speak the things we've seen and heard. You know, Exodus, if you read the book of Exodus, it really opens on a a downer note, doesn't it? Joseph, his brothers, all that generation have died, the text says. There's a new pharaoh. There's a new king in town. And this new king that's in town, he doesn't know Joseph, doesn't seem to care about Joseph, doesn't seem to care about the Hebrew people. He's a bit paranoid, it seems, about this group of Hebrews living in Goshen. They're growing in numbers. And he has this pressing fear. He has a fear that they're going to keep growing. And in time of war, he's concerned that the Hebrews might jump ship and fight for the enemy. That's what the Bible says. So what's he do? So he decides to oppress the people. He makes life hard for them. He works them with rigor, setting taskmasters over them. They become a people enslaved, is what happens. The people of God, remember, had been enjoying the best of life while Joseph was around. They had the best land. They had the best of crops. They had the best of the best. They were on the mountain top. Joseph dies. His brothers are gone. That whole generation is gone. That Pharaoh is gone. Another Pharaoh comes in, doesn't know Joseph. Things change. Tell me, have you ever been a part of a situation where you have had it really good in terms of your employment because you know the boss? And that boss ends up leaving. A new boss comes in. And something happens... This new boss doesn't take to you like your old boss does. Things change. You get demoted or, worse yet, you get ousted. Sort of the scenario here. There was a really good thing happening for the Hebrew people for quite a while. Change of scenery. One might begin to wonder... As we read Exodus 1, where's God? How how can this be happening to his people? 
enter the Hebrew midwives. I'd love to have met these two ladies and encouraged them for their courageous acts. Whether the Hebrew expectant mothers were really more lively at birth or not, that's what they said. The Lord honors these women with households of their own. I love the fact that verse 21 is, is in the text. And, it, and so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Isn't that great? The fear of God is foundational to decision making. Chapter 1 verse 17 says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. The midwives feared God. That's an important principle here, church. The midwives feared God. In the midst of all the work of God in and through the life of Moses, the pages of Exodus begins with two simple God-fearing midwives. They opted to fear God. They chose to save lives. I couldn't, as I read this, I couldn't bypass these, these two women. Because I think it's a fitting journey, a fitting start to the journey that is through the book of Exodus. A God sighting that maybe we would overlook. You see, God's extraordinary work, and all of God's work is extraordinary, because he's an extraordinary God, amen? God's extraordinary work is being accomplished through his ordinary servants. We see that right here in chapter 1. Two Hebrew female midwives, God siding. God is at work. Don't miss it. And you know, out of this we can ask the question, will you fear God more than man? The fear of man, the Bible says, brings a what? Snare. But the fear of the Lord, listen to this, is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, there's this strong confidence. Do you see how that plays out here with these two midwives? There's a strong confidence in the fear of the Lord. Moving along, God's sighting, stop number two. Uh, we don't have to go very far. A few of these are right up front in the, in the, in the book. Chapter two, uh, the birth of a baby boy in Exodus two. And we travel into chapter 2 and you see a, a Hebrew baby born into the world. Now, having already talked about what we've covered, you might immediately start to wonder, uh-oh, a, a Hebrew baby boy born in this context. That doesn't sound like a good scenario. In fact, we skipped over a very important verse. It's the last verse of chapter 1, which says, Pharaoh, when he found out he was being foiled... His plan A didn't work, so here's his plan B. Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son who is born, that is every son who is born of the Hebrews, right? You shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So now this decree is all of a sudden gone nationwide. This isn't just spoken out of two Hebrew midwives. Chapter 2 now opens. And you know, the arrival of a baby 
is cause for celebration. Amen? I mean, when you think about having a baby, you think about rejoicing, you think about celebration, you think about good news, and you think about all the wonderful times you're going to have holding and snuggling that little baby. And yet, the last verse of chapter 1 provides helpful context. And so plan A didn't work. So plan B is now this nationwide decree that all sons, Hebrew boys, should be cast into the river. Mothers, for just a moment, can you imagine such a decree being issued? It's it's a heart-wrenching one to think about. This is the context of Exodus 2. A Levite man marries the daughter of Levi. They give birth to a son. No ordinary son, a beautiful son. A son that is well-pleasing, the Hebrew writer says about Moses. For three months, they hide this baby from the authorities. Now listen, that's a God sighting right there of its own. Huh? Amen? Those of you who've had little ones, you know this. When a baby is born, shortly after that baby is born, you typically hear crying at some point. But you typically hear a lot of crying in those first three months, too. For three months, they hid this baby. That is a God. God is at work. He's protecting. He's preserving all the while. And for reasons we're not totally clear on, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. It came to pass that after three months, they could no longer hide their baby. And you get the idea they had planned this out. This was not just some uh, decision made on a whim. I really believe in many ways they prayed about this. They thought through this carefully. They had a plan. But greater than that, it seems God had a plan. And they place their child in this homemade basket, right? And they situate him strategically, I believe, among the reeds of the river. And Pharaoh's daughter ends up retrieving the basket and discovers a crying Hebrew baby boy. Now stop right there for just a moment. If you didn't know the rest of the story, you might be inclined right here to just gasp out of what's coming next. You might just cringe when you see that this Hebrew baby is now in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. This is the daughter of the king who just issued a decree to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. You see, the story doesn't go as you might expect it. And isn't that the way it is oftentimes with the scripture and with God? It doesn't always happen like you think it's going to happen. It doesn't always happen in the time frame that you would want it to happen. But church, God is always on time. As I was thinking about this God sighting, I was reminded in Proverbs 21.30 that there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Look what happens in the text. God not only orchestrates a favorable reaction 
to the Hebrew baby. But God is at work to nurse and provide for this baby boy. God allows this Hebrew baby boy to be nursed by whom? By his own mama. Oh, isn't that great? How does that happen? That's a God sighting. Let's not miss this, please. God showed up, allows this preservation of life, and then Miriam, I'm convinced, is a plant. She's ready. She's got her line ready. And as soon as Pharaoh's daughter discovers this, I mean, Miriam is like right there. She's ready. Shall I go get someone to help? And Pharaoh's daughter says, absolutely, yeah, go get somebody. And who does she get? Mom. Mom comes. Now, mom has to play. She has to play this very cool and down. She can't lead on that she's mom. Hey, that's my baby. Give me my baby. No. Think about that. And not only does Pharaoh's daughter say, take her and nurse her for me, but I'm going to, listen, this is a God sighting too. She gets paid to take care of her own son out of the Egyptian treasury. How do you like that one? Isn't that great? That's a God sighting. It's amazing. A baby boy not only survives the king's decree, but is nurtured and supported and cared for in the midst of the decree. You see, God works in the context of what seems impossible. He can reorder, he can rearrange, he can reposition any situation for his purposes. Let me ask you this morning, do you have any situations in your life right now that seem impossible? Perhaps this God sighting right here in Exodus 2 is what you need to hear this morning. Things weren't looking good for this young Hebrew couple. A baby boy is born amidst a death decree. And God shows up. He preserves life. He nurtures life. Provides all that's necessary. Go one more chapter. Exodus 3. Here's our third stop. This is the one about the bush on fire. Remember this? A familiar one, probably to many of you here. This baby boy now has grown up. Forty years of time have passed in Egypt, being educated in the ways of Egyptian culture. Moses finds himself in Midian. He's committed murder. He's murdered an Egyptian. He's tried to do things his way. Didn't quite work. He leaves town, flees to Midian, gets hooked up with Jethro in Midian, becomes a shepherd, tending to his flock, has a child in a foreign land. See, even in these middle years of Moses' life, he's already understanding and beginning to get and grasp this idea of what it is to be a stranger in a foreign land. Chapter 3 opens. And in chapter 3, he's going about his business. It's another day at work. And he finds himself tending to the flock on the backside of the desert, the mountain of God. The mountain of God, Oreb, Sinai, no small place. Oh, but on this particular occasion, it's really a, a place of obscurity. And Moses is shepherding, doing his daily duties when he notices this bush on fire. 
And and in the wilderness, I would imagine that a bush catching fire would quickly consume. But that's not what happens in the text. The bush was burning with fire, chapter 3, verse 2 says. But the bush was not consumed. Now, the fire catches Moses' attention like it would probably capture all of your attention and mine as well. He turned, and the Bible says that when God saw he turned to look, God spoke. And the text says that Moses heard a voice, heard his name, actually, Moses, Moses. Imagine hearing your name from a bush that's burning and it's not being consumed. Something is going on here. Okay? Things are happening that ought not be happening. This is strange. And there's nothing, we don't get at least evidence that there's another human being out there with Moses. Moses isn't having a dialogue with somebody. Hey, did you see that? He's not confirming what he's seeing with anybody. He's dealing with this, processing this by himself. So he hears Moses. A dry bush in the wilderness, fire in the bush. It doesn't burn up and out of the fire, God speaking. I want to draw your attention to chapter 3, verse 10. Because this is the call. This is a real pivotal point in the whole book of Exodus right here. You know, as you trace the the, the people of God throughout the scripture, you see a lot of times God calling these people, men and women, to great things for him, for his purposes. And right here, Exodus 3.10 is that mark in the life of Moses. And God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Stop, pause, pause, time out. I will send you to whom? Pharaoh. Well, if we've read it all the way up through this point, we can understand that he probably heard those words and, and he immediately was like, Pharaoh, I don't want to go to Pharaoh. He wants to kill me. I don't want to go to Pharaoh. Bad stuff was happening there. He said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Why? That you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Those two words there in verse 10 I'd like you to key in on. Bring and out. Bring out. God says, you're going to be the one that I'm choosing because, see Moses, I've heard the cry of my people and you are the one. I've come down. I'm visiting my people and I'm going to do so through you. I'm going to use you, Moses, and you are going to go to Pharaoh and you are going to bring out my people from the land of Egypt. You know, as I was thinking about this God sighting here, I was thinking about the mundane, the ordinary situations in life, which is Moses right here in chapter 3. God is at work. God is at work. He's speaking during your day job. Some of us need to hear that one. He's speaking during your day job, during the mundane tasks, going to the office, doing the meetings, doing the laundry, doing the cooking, doing whatever it is you do on a Monday through Saturday. God is at work. And listen, he wants to speak to you while you're at your work. He wants to get your attention. Some of us are so busy with our stuff, we don't pause to look when he's speaking. Do you see your work on the backside of the desert as insignificant? Do you have the mentality that God only shows up in the limelight or on the mountaintop? He's not going to show up here. Why would he show up here? Well, if we know our Bibles, we ought to know that God uses the weak. God uses the lowly. God uses the insignificant. God uses those who 
don't think a whole lot about themselves in terms of pride or ego. God uses those kinds of people. That's, that's the pattern. You see, when God has a work to do, listen, here's such a simple, simple thought, but if we think about it for just a moment, when, when he has work to do, you know who he uses? People. People like you and me. When he has a work to do, he uses people. When God has a work to do, he calls people into his service. When he calls, let me ask you the question. When he calls, what's your response? You know what Moses' response was, don't you? You remember? Who am I? What was interesting as I was reading that, Moses says, who am I? God says, I am who? I just flip it around. This is exactly what it is. I am who? I am who I am. Who am I? Now, in one sense, that's maybe sounds good. Who am I? Oh, 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 I can't do that. But eventually it gets to the point where God says, no, 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 Moses. I'm calling you. I will be with you. In fact, he says that very thing in verse 13. Excuse me, he says, verse 12. I will certainly be with you. I will certain, I will, not just I'm going to be with you. I will certainly be with you. And on and on the excuses come. But we see him show up here. We see another God sighting shortly after. In fact, it spans chapters 4 through chapter 12. And that is the, what we know as the plagues, right? It's another stop on the way that I think is, is so significant in this journey. In the book of Exodus, the water that's turned to blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the cattle, the boils, and probably my favorite one, if there's a favorite, you know, I don't, it sounds probably kind of bad to say a favorite, but hail. I mean, I just think about what that would have been. That, that to me would have just been, oh. And I think about the hail and thinking about that with the one in Revelation Right, those 100-pound hailstone balls that fall to the ground and are wiping everything and everybody out. Hail. Locusts, darkness, and then that last one is the firstborn. Well, in the midst of the plagues. By the way, I found it helpful as I was studying this week and looking at Exodus to kind of think about it in a framework and, and thinking about the book as a whole from a structured framework. Um, I found uh, Swindoll was helpful in this and in, in, in kind of giving a, an overview. Um, he, he looked at the first two chapters as bondage, right? Bad news. We talked about it already, some of the bad news. And then chapters 3 through 12, he talked about deliverance. And then in verses 13 through 18, he talked about a journey. They're making a journey. They're at least starting their journey. 19 through 24, he, he labeled that part the law where we have the Ten Commandments. And then 25 through 40, we see the tabernacle. That's really the structure. And so as we're talking about these, these stops along the way, think about it too in terms of the structure. Bondage, deliverance, journey, law, tabernacle. That's really the layout of the book of, of Exodus. Well, in the midst of these plagues, a significant God sighting occurs on multiple occasions. 
right? You cannot miss God at work in the midst of these plagues. Now, early on, it seems that, well, uh, the Egyptian magicians could perform some of these things too. But it doesn't take too long into the plagues where the, uh, the Egyptian magicians end up doing one of these, you know, the Pharaoh, they're like, hey, I got nothing. Well, I, I didn't even know I had a penny in my pocket. I got nothing. Nothing. I can't do that one. Nothing. I can't do it. In fact, further along you go in the story, you know what happens? You remember those magicians? Don't they, at some point, they go to Pharaoh and they go, hey, you, you got, let, let them go. Get these people out of here. They're going to kill us all. Now, Pharaoh was being used by God himself, wasn't he? There's that, that big theological burning question in the life of Pharaoh, which we're not going to dive into, so don't worry about it this morning. Fact is, his hard heart is coupled with God using this to show his power in and through the life of Pharaoh. He's showing his mighty wonders. And what we see in the midst of the plagues, in fact, chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, we see the first instance of this. This is the plague of the flies. This is, this is great. He says, he's telling them what's going to happen. Verse 22, I'll set apart the land of Goshen, which is where his people are. And that no swarms of flies shall be there. In order that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the land. In order to let you know, Pharaoh, who's in control here. He says, 23, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. I will make a difference between your people and my people. You see, God does that. God watches over the ways of the righteous. God knows the way of the wicked. Read Psalm 1, and you'll see that very clearly. It's happening here. If you keep flipping in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we see it again with the livestock. I love this. The Lord did this thing on the next day. All the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Look at verse 7, chapter 9. Then Pharaoh sent. Don't miss this. Pharaoh sent. And indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard. And he did not let the people go. He's, he's checking it out. He sends somebody to go check it out. I don't know if I believe. He goes and checks it out. And it's true. You keep going. Verse 26. Plague of the hail. The hail struck all the stuff in Egypt. And then 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Is the Lord involved in this or not? The evidence sure seems to point this way. You keep going. One more in 11.23. Or excuse me, in uh, the plague of darkness. 10.23. Yeah. Moses stretched out his hand. There was a stick of darkness all over the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another. Imagine how dark that is. They couldn't see each other. They couldn't see each other. They had to stay put where they were says, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. The Lord watching over the way of the righteous? Is he watching over the ways of his people? Absolutely he is. You see, this distinction occurs. A God sighting that is unmistakable. God is differentiating between Egypt and his people. Exodus 12 speaks of the plague of the firstborn. And surrounding this last plague is the institution of Passover. Now... It's interesting here when we start to think about 
covenant from last week. We think about the covenant from last week and what God brings to the equation. When we think about what God brings, God is bringing this gracious, saving act to bear on the lives of his people. What's he expecting of his people? Well, I think what's he expecting of his people is found in actually Exodus chapter 20. Right? That's another stop along the way. That's the Ten Commandments. He's expecting them to obey him. (laughs) Obey what I've commanded you. And we see here in the text, in, in chapter 12, 21 through 23, it's the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. Verse 23 of chapter 12 says, When he sees the blood, when he sees the blood, when the Lord sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. We think about these plagues and the number of times when God is seen at work through each one of those plagues. And we get to the last one. And that is a God sighting him in and of itself, the death of the firstborn. Many, many things could be said there about that. But in Exodus chapter 12, one other thing I want to point out here is what's actually called the Exodus. You know, the book is called Exodus. And the book is called Exodus for a reason. It actually means departure. Departure. Well, who's departing? And where are they departing to? Well, they're departing from Egypt. And they're departing to that promised land. Right? Remember the promise from Abraham? And and here in Exodus, we keep seeing God referring to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In fact, a couple times we see in Exodus, God says he's using all this and he's remembering the covenant. And he's telling Moses to tell the people that he's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. He's referring to his name, who he is. Time and again. God sighting number five. I'm going to keep going. In 13 and 14 of Exodus, we see another one. And that is uh, what we know as the familiar Red Sea crossing. All right? Part of the departure, if you will. They're leaving. They, uh, some of them think they're home free at this point. And they're right up against the Red Sea. What I find interesting here is in verse 21 and 22. And by the way, if we back up just a few verses in 19 of chapter 13. Moses, as they're leaving, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had placed the children, Joseph did that is, placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you. Did you know that the Hebrew, Hebrew writer in chapter 11, the by faith chapter, has this very thing in here about Joseph. By faith. You know, not only that Joseph uh, talked to them about his bones being taken back to the land, but God is going to surely visit you. And guess what's happened? God has visited his people. And so Moses is taking his bones back to the promised land. It's going to be a while before they get there because they're going to get into some trouble along the way. But nevertheless, he takes the bones with them. Look at 21 and 22 of chapter 13. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. God sighting? Yeah. He's leading. 
He's in charge. Unmistakable. Cloud by day, fire by night. That stays, we stay. That moves, we move. Think about how simple life might be if we had something visual like that and God was there and, it's, and, and he's moving. That, that's moving, so okay, I'm supposed to pack up and I'm going. Okay, and it stays and I stay here and it moves and I move. That was the idea. God was leading his people. I love the song, God Leads His Dear Children Along. I was thinking about that very idea as we were singing that hymn this morning. Wonderful, powerful chapter 14. I love this in verse 13. When the people see the Egyptians coming, they're worried. They think it's going to be over. And Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still. By the way, you know when Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, in that armor of God, what's he say we need to do? Stand. Put on the armor and stand. Why? Because God's the one that's going to win the victory. He's won the victory. He's secured the victory. Moses is telling the people, stand still and see the salvation, see the rescue, see the deliverance of the Lord. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he's going to accomplish for you today. Look at verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. It sounds like David. David, David, we're going to see him too, and he's going to show up, and that's exactly what's going to happen. God's going to fight. This battle is the Lord's. Well, we know the story. Israel crosses over on dry ground. Israel pursues, but they don't quite get over. In fact, God, I love the phrase in verse 25 of 14. He took off their chariot wheels. <laughs> God took off their chariot wheels. That's like a prank. It's like a joke. They're rattling across on dry ground and and they've fallen out of their chariot and water rushes over. All of them are gone. God took off their chariot. God, God is at work here. This is a God sighting moment. We can't miss this. Well, out of this chapter 14, 13 and 14, uh, we see a song of praise and celebration. I love verse 2 of 15. Moses is, notice the response from deliverance of the people out of Egypt from the hands of the Egyptians. What's the response? Let's not miss this either. What, this is part of our response. When God shows up in our lives and is doing a work in our lives, what ought to be our response? Worship, praise, celebration. Gratitude, all the above. The song of Moses here in chapter 15, verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 6, your right hand has become glorious in power. Your right hand has dashed the enemy in pieces. Verse 13, you and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Verse 16, by the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, Lord, till the people pass over whom you've purchased, you will bring them in and plant them. Keep turning the page, chapter 17. There's another God sighting. 
And here we see that in this God sighting in chapter 17, God is the difference maker in the battle. And there's something about this battle with the Amalekites that really appeals to me. It draws me to the text. It's just a short segment of the passage there in chapter 17. But I believe it's significant because while Moses and Aaron and Hur are on the top of the, the mountain, and Moses is holding it. By the way, just a side note, Moses has got this thing with this rod of God and holding it and extending it and lifting it up. If you, if you trace the rod of God, that's like one of the first things that God says to Moses when he's making excuses. What's in your hand? A rod. Yeah, and he starts he's to throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. Ah, right, and he picks it up by its tail. This rod of God becomes a very helpful instrument for Moses to remember the God of heaven. And this rod of God is used mightily by God himself in Moses' hand and with Aaron. And we see here in this text, as we look at the difference maker in the battle, what's he doing? When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Verse 11, when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Have you ever tried to stand holding your hands up? Just, just, just holding them up, however long you can hold them up. You know, it, it probably won't take you very long before you'll start doing one of these. Ooh. And so what do we see happen? In the battle, remember, they're up on the hill. They're sitting up here on the hill and they're looking down in the valley. Joshua's got his fighting men and they're fighting away down there. And Joshua probably is oblivious to what's going on exactly up here on the hill. But we know from behind the scenes, and we think about a, a God sighting here. Sometimes when we're in the midst of fighting battles here, we think that you know, all we can see is what we're in the midst of doing. But we fail to remember that God is at work. God is doing something here. And the prayers of the people are significant here. Because Aaron and her, what do they do with Moses? Remember? They are coming alongside Moses and they are upholding his arms. And what ends up happening as a result of this? Israel wins, correct? They win the battle. Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. An altar is built and the Lord is my banner. The Lord is the one. He's the difference maker in the battle. A God sighting showed up to claim victory for the, for the people of God. Here's another one. We've got a couple more and we're going to be done. There's a lot more we could share, but I'm going to share a few more. Another God sighting, number seven, is, is found in, in Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18, another favorite passage of mine. This is Jethro brings back, sends a word to Moses that he's coming back with his wife and children. They're going to visit. And when he comes back to visit... It says, Moses, look at verse 7 of chapter 18. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him, paid him respect. And I love this. They asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. Can you imagine? I'd love to have been in the tent. I'd love to have been in the tent on this situation. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake... All the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. Listen to what Jethro says, verse 10. 
Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who's delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. You almost get the idea that before this conversation in the tent, you know, Jethro is like just, you know, God of heaven, he's, he's all right. He's, he's, yeah, he's, he's part of the gods that I would worship. But after I, after I read this, I, I get the impression that he comes away with a, a great impression now of who this God of heaven is. So much that this is the one I want to serve. Turning point. And I love this because in this God sighting, not only do we see this reunion here with Moses and his family and Jethro, but the God sighting happens in the midst of what Moses is doing because Moses is standing up on his day and he's judging the people, right? And, and Jethro's sitting there, he's, he's observing and he's watching. Think about it, if, if someone were to just watch you at your workplace and just observe you and see what you're doing. And, and you know, after the day, Jethro comes up to Moses and says, hey, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear out all the other people because everybody's coming to you with all of the problems. He says he's given Moses some counsel. The God sighting here is that, you know what, in our lives, we have to be aware and open to what other people might have to teach us and tell us. Some of us are not very good with listening to what other people have to say. And on this particular occasion... His father-in-law shows up, observes him at work, and is able to see very clearly. And not only is he able to see very clearly, but he's able to outline. He's a god. I really believe he's a godly man. If you look at the criteria, I like the criteria. Here are the people you should select. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. That's a pretty good starter list. Some good counsel. And at the end of the chapter, it says, Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he commanded him. All right, amen. Well, I think all of us could use some godly counsel like that in our lives. Are we open to that when those moments come? Are we quick to turn people away? Are we quick to close people down when they have a word to share about our life? When it's handled and done in the right way? God does use other people to help us and transform us, church. Here's another God sighting, stop number eight, which is a biggie, 19 and 20. The Ten Commandments, our text that we read this morning. You know, as I was reading chapter 19, and you see that this is the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. They came to the wilderness of Sinai. Listen to verse 2. They departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, camped in the wilderness. They camped there before the mountain. Hold that. Go backwards to Exodus chapter 3 and go to verse 12. Remember, this is the call of God in Moses' life. And God says to Moses, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. Here's a sign for you, Moses. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. We get to Exodus 19. Church, where are they? They're on the mountain. I can't help but think that Moses, when he gets to the mountain in Exodus 19 with this million and a half, two two million people. I mean, that's about how many there are. Estimated about two million people. 600,000 men, right, besides the children. And women, they they didn't get included in here. 
I, I would imagine there's at least a million and a half to two million people we're talking about. And they're camped out at the mountain. And I imagine it was a moment of worship for Moses as he remembered that sign, that promise from back in Exodus 3 when God called him. So here he is at the mountain. And I love these words. In verse 4 and 5, he says to Moses, listen to what he says here. He calls him from the mountain. Here's what you need to say to the house of Jacob. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice... And keep my covenant. Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, listen, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And you know, he goes and he speaks to the children of Israel. And the children of Israel go, yeah, we're going to, everything you say, we're going to do. Yes. And they nod their head in agreement. Got it. We're going to do it. Then we both know, as we, if we know the story, we know what happens shortly after. They, they, said, they said this, but it didn't necessarily happen. It didn't take too many chapters. So this chapter 20, these ten commandments. By the way, from this point forward to the end of the book, we see Moses doing a lot of traveling up the mountain, down the mountain. Up the mountain, down the mountain. Up the mountain, down the mountain. He's meeting with God. We talk about God's sightings, and I think it's important here to point out from a walk with God perspective. Are we taking time to go up the mountain, so to speak, to meet with God? Every day of our lives, are we taking time to meet with Him? Are we taking time to hear from Him? Because you see, God doesn't just want to speak in the text to Moses. God desires now, today, to speak to you and to me, to get our attention, to have us look unto him, who's the author and perfecter of the faith. Do we desire to meet with him? To be in his presence? Moses was gone. He was gone from the people on occasion, wasn't he? And some bad stuff happened while he wasn't around. Right? But these commandments that are given, do you notice that it says in verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, and you notice commandment number 1 is not the first thing that's out of the boat? What's the first thing? I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Out of bondage. I'm the one who rescued you. Remember who I am. Remember that I rescued you. And then he gets into the commandments. Those first four commandments being what many have referred to as vertical, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath. But then those last six have a, have a, a really horizontal connotation. If you notice, starting in commandment number six, you shall not murder. These are against one another. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, anything belonging to his neighbor. God's sightings. So glad that the Lord has given to us his word and he's given to us his commandments. 
In 25 through 40, we see this tabernacle. Here's another God sighting, the tabernacle construction. We see evidence of the tabernacle throughout. And 25 through 40 really is, is the, not only the word to make the tabernacle, but then also the actual making and building of the tabernacle. For time's sake, we won't go into some particular details there other than to say that God was very much at work in the establishing of his tabernacle. And as we read earlier in John 14, uh, Jesus himself, when he came down here, he literally tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. Here's the last of the God sightings that I'd like to share with you this morning. Um, It's found in Exodus 32 and 33. This is the the sighting of of Moses saying essentially, uh, lead us or else. God, lead us or else. I I can't go. I'm not going to go if you're not going to lead us. And you got to remember that this comes right on the heels of chapter 32, which was a pretty bad chapter in the life of Israel. (laughs) Right? If we know Exodus 32, we know that was the chapter where Aaron gets this brilliant idea. Hey, give me all your gold. Go ahead, chip them all in here. We'll throw them into the furnace and out pops this calf. Tomorrow we'll have a feast. And they say, as for Moses, we don't know what happened to this fellow. But we're going to worship this golden calf. Now, that's chapter 32. Something happened in, in Exodus 20, if I recall, about not making for yourself a carved image. Not worshiping any other gods. Something happened on the heels of that when when the commandments were given to the people and the people said, yes, yes, we'll obey. Yes, we're going to do everything that you say, God. Moses comes down with those two tablets. And God says, man, you better get down there, Moses. Your people. (laughs) And I imagine Moses was like, you know, these are your people. And he comes down and he's got these two tablets. You remember what happens, right? Moses is, he's, he's just frustrated. He's ain't boom. And he has to make another trip up the mountain a little later and, get, and rewrite it. God writes him again for him. He's gracious and merciful. He does it again. This, this whole idea of, of what Moses deals with when we get to 33, he says that in verse 9, he entered the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Ah. Oh. The Lord talked with Moses. This goes back to what we said right at the beginning about experiencing, just being in his presence, talking, communing, fellowshipping with the Lord. And the people saw the pillar of cloud and all the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses. Listen to this. He spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Isn't that amazing? And then you get to verse 12. Moses said, see, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you also have found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I find, may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. Listen to what God says in verse 14. My presence will go with you 
and I will give you rest. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. How will it be known that your people and I have found grace except you go with us, God? But not for the grace of God, not for the strength of God in our lives. We're a lot like the other people around us in this world. God says, you found grace in my sight. And I know you by name. He knows your name. I love that song. And Moses takes it one step further and asks to show, show me your glory. He gets to see the backside. Well, in 33, Moses enters the tabernacle. And here's where I want to end. Turn to chapter 40. Tabernacle is built. It's done. The work is done. Moses looked over all the work. Indeed, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. Just so they'd done it. And Moses blessed people. Chapter 40, we see that the work is done according to all the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And then we get to verse 34. Here's where I want to end, right here. Take note of this. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, oftentimes when we read that, we think, wow, wonderful. That's, that's, that's a great picture. Look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting. Because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle. Just a few chapters earlier, he enters the tabernacle. He enters, but here he's not able to enter because of the glory of God, the brilliancy. He's filling it, but he's not able to enter. And I think one of the things that Exodus teaches us as a takeaway, as a God sighting, God does not take lightly our sin. Entering into his presence is no casual experience. Sin in the midst of a holy God. What needs to happen? And I believe what follows in the book of Leviticus is an explanation for the next step in the people of God. See, because sacrifice is needed. Blood, as we'll come to see is necessary to atone for sin. Entering into God's presence is done through sacrifice. And here what we're going to see in Leviticus through the blood of bulls and goats. But now in the day we live on the other side of the cross, we understand that the blood that redeems, the blood that cleanses, the blood that renews and makes whole is the blood that's from the one perfect Passover lamb sacrifice whose name is Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for helping us see 
the number of times that you showed up in this book of Exodus. Lord, we just touched on, I feel like, I feel like we just touched on a few and, and, and maybe left a, a few that undone, so to speak, a, a lot left over. But Lord, I, I thank you that you've given to us a glimpse of your presence with your people, a carrying on of the gospel through this book of Exodus as we see your great rescue, as we see your salvation, your taking your people from bondage and delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. The sign that you've given to us in the midst of this, Lord, is, is that great Passover meal that we celebrate, which, upon which the Lord's Supper itself is, is originated and, and comes and flows out of. Thank you, Lord, for your blood, that the blood of Christ The Bible says that we who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your great love toward us. Thank you for showing up in our lives, even in those ordinary moments. Lord, I pray that some of the things we talked about today, Lord, would would be instructive for us to remember that every day we have opportunity to meet and commune with you. Every day we have opportunity to look for you in our mundane tasks that we would expect to meet with you. We would long to meet with you. And Lord, as you're doing a work, I pray that we would be content and hold on and hope even when we find ourselves in bondage like the people of God in Exodus 1 and 2. Things didn't look all that great. But Lord, even in the midst of the the situation, you were working. And Lord, you're still working today. Do a great work in us, I pray. Move us, transform us, that we might become the people of God that you've called us to be. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.